Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu cc. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Back in 1516, Thomas More introduced the world to a pretty novel idea that a perfect society is possible if we plan it right. He called the notion utopia, and the idea of a perfect world caught on. This week, we'll look at a bunch of ways and a bunch of different people who've been convinced you can design your own world and you can live in it. And they've had varying degrees of success. Chris Jennings, author of Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism, has written about a moment in America when a far better existence seemed possible. It was the early 1800s. The Industrial Revolution was transforming Europe and it was transforming America. And the perfect society seemed right around the corner. America itself was new. So the idea of starting a whole new place from scratch whenever it felt right seemed vaguely doable. Jennings says that the Industrial Revolution and the power of science spawned a whole crop of utopian communities, many of which were aiming for heaven on earth, literally. These ideas were, I think, fairly mainstream, which is part of what makes the story so strange and interesting, because when we encounter these ideas, they now sound very wild to us and Mm -hmm. really far out. And yet these were ideas that were being passed around in um, well-read circles in every city in the U.S. and in in Western Europe, at least. But I think what people were confronting was not this uh, assumption that technology would make life better. It was this irony. They were looking at where industrialism had taken hold, like a city like Manchester, England, which was probably the sort of birthplace and and most developed example of an industrial economy at that point, was sort of a hellhole. Industrialism had not wrought this wonderful new society. It had wrought a new and even more unequal society than the one that preceded it. In some ways, it was worse than the sort of feudal precursor because people didn't even have subsistence livings anymore because no one owned land. So the utopians were looking at that situation and saying, we, we have these amazing technologies producing this newfound abundance. You know, a machine can now do the work that right. a few years ago it took 20 men to do, and yet it's producing this hellish environment. So their hope was to couple that technology with sort of new ideas about how labor should be organized to produce a better result. Well, and at the same time, they kind of, at the same time as they embraced sort of technology in the future, part of that future was um, like the New Jerusalem, you know, that, that I guess for some reason in the early 1800s, a lot of people thought heaven was like right around the corner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's another thing with our sort of modern categories of how we think of science and religion. Um, it's hard to understand how thoroughly scrambled uh biblical prophetic ideas about the coming of the perfection of the earth were sort of mixed up with these very rational, or at least uh, they would have called them rational enlightenment ideas about man's capacity to uh, improve the world, not through divine assistance, but through hard work and ingenuity and math and physics and all of these newfound wonders that had been um, stumbled upon in the 17th and 18th century. So the religious ideas and the utopian ideas are almost impossible to untangle, even for the people who are expressly secular in their thinking. Talk about um, a community that in some ways was more radical than almost anything we can think of now and sort of brought together some of these strands that today might not be married together. 
Well, I, I think the, the sort of best known and, and maybe best loved American example are, are the Shakers. They come out of Manchester, England. They immigrate to the United States just as a tiny little sect, and they explode in numbers in the early 19th century. Their ideas could not have been more radical. They basically wanted to overturn all the basic building blocks of Western civilization. There would be no more family, no more wages, no more private property. Men and women were totally equal. And of course, the doctrine for which they're most famous, there'd be no more sex and reproduction. And so, you know, they were basically doing away with everything that adds up to society as it was then and still is known. And they were basing that idea both on a, a series of sort of religious revelations about what the second coming of Christ was going to look like and how it was already unfolding, and also what we might call uh, rational ideas about how to reform society. And something that the Shakers had in common with almost all the other 19th century utopians is they regarded the family as somehow antithetical to utopia. We had to get rid of the family as it is now constituted before we can have a perfected society. What was it about the family that was that these utopian sort of future-looking societies d- didn't like? <laughs> there was almost nothing about the family that they did like, okay. but they come <laughs> at it from a number of angles. With the Shakers and to a lesser extent with everyone else, there's a sort of feminist critique, though they wouldn't have used that language of the family as this institution that enslaves women to a life of drudgery and child-rearing and breeding, which of course was... Uh, incredibly dangerous thing to do in the middle 19th century. And it's important as a caveat with all of these communities to say that there was always some distance between their stated ideals and their actual conduct. They were people of their time. So even communities that had very explicit feminist programs uh, within the communities, you know, women might not always be getting the best deal. But I mean, the Shakers... Most obviously, they were organized under a female prophet, Anne Lee, who was sort of the founder of the Shakers, for lack of a better word. She was a woman, and they basically regarded her, though it's a bit complicated, as the second coming of of Christ. So that was a big step towards having a society of female empowerment, having a female religious leader. But even after Anne Lee died, which she did very early on in the Shakers' Um, reign, the community continued to have this notion of male and female spheres that were meant to be totally separated, but totally equal. One of the things that these communities had in common was that they, as you said, they didn't really accept the idea of the family. And so in some way or another, either by not having sex or by just like changing the way relationships are, rejecting monogamy or whatever it was, totally rearranged the way we Uh, create relationships. Right. Well, the best example there, because it's sort of the opposite and the same as the Shakers, is the Oneida community, which is under the leadership of a man named John Humphrey Noyes in upstate New York. And they have a number of interesting doctrines, but like the Shakers... Abstinence sort of defines them in the world's imagination. The Oneida community practiced what they called complex marriage, but was essentially a sort of organized form of free love in which any male in the community with some restrictions could sleep with any female in the community and vice versa. But, you know, so in some ways they're having lots of sex and they're talking about sex in a way that nobody was in the 19th century, focusing on pleasure um, and really being interested in female sexual pleasure, which was obviously a very taboo thing at the time. And so while the Shakers are just down the road from them practicing total abstinence uh, and the Oneida communities having this free love, they actually understood each other as being involved more or less in the same project um, as finding a way to overturn 
uh, the family. And, and in fact, they were, they were sort of reading the same little bits of the Bible to reach these very huh. opposite conclusions and sort of pointing to the same text to say, look, this justifies our either free love or our total lack of sex. And um, one shaker described the two communities as noble contestants in building up the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> in a practical way, they, they couldn't have been more different. In one community, you're having lots of sex. One, you're having none. And yet they understood that they were basically trying to do something similar. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with author Chris Jennings about the history of utopias in America. Do you think that now in the U.S., we have legacies of these movements? I think absolutely. Um, For one thing, when these communities collapsed, their members often went forth into the sort of wider American society and had very illustrious careers, um, not so much as as utopians, but as sort of um, what we might now call progressives. These were people who, you know, people left New Harmony and went, set up uh, reformist newspapers and, and tours and things preaching uh, women's women's rights and abolitionism and uh, the ideas that were were at the vanguard of their time for for sort of uh, uh, then is what they would have called reformist ideas. Um, temperance was often. A, a I was going to say horse. I think of progressives as connected to um, like banning the use of alcohol. I mean, a prohibition. I think of. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Although this is this well precedes prohibition as a sort of <clears throat> political crusade, and and I think that's a good example of how a lot of these ideas that 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 got their start and really took hold in these utopian communities eventually ended up turning for better and worse into into political crusades. So um, we've talked about a lot of visions of the future. Let's talk about how these these visions ended and. Um, I mean, they, they ended in their own way, but one thing they have in common is the Civil War seemed to be really hard um, on utopian communities. So what happened? Why did so many sort of decline or fail uh, as the Civil War started or, you know, it was going on? I think that the Civil War actually wasn't that hard in a practical way on the utopian communities themselves. Some of them got hammered very poorly. Shaker communities in Kentucky were sort of caught up in the midst of the fighting. Hmm. Um, but but many of the communities, by the time the Civil War starts, had sort of retreated into a, a somewhat um, quieter stage in their development. Um, so th- they were actually largely left out of it. What the Civil War did do was it, it sort of um, changed the, the surrounding culture in a way that um, it, it, before the war and before the lead up to the war, it, it had seemed reasonable, this Enlightenment notion that human society is just getting better and better and better. And every decade will be slightly better than the preceding decade. So this idea that the world is in a sort of c- continuous upward trajectory, um, right. you know, reasonable people could hold that belief. After the entire country descended into a sort of lunatic bloodbath for years, it was a lot harder to to make the case that the world is just gradually improving, right, 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 and that and that we're heading sort of ineluctably towards society of peace and abundance. So it's it's not so much that the war interfered in a material way with the communities themselves, though there were examples of that. Um, it was more that the war changed the intellectual climate. After the war, um, intelligent people didn't look to these communities anymore and say, oh, that's a plausible description of what the future will look like. It sort of took and, the and air I'll, out. It, 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 it took the it air deflated, out. deflated, yeah. Yeah, it, it deflated that sort of, that sort of optimism about... Um, 
the sort of trajectory of history. And also in a very practical way, the war greatly expanded the government and brought the government Hmm. sort of into people's lives in a way it previously hadn't been. And so now if you were a socialist, if you believe that the society of sort of shared ownership was the appropriate um, path for history, you looked to the government as a way of enacting your ideas. If you were Hmm. a temperance advocate, maybe you became a prohibition advocate. Ideas that had previously been practiced in a sort of private way um, went into government. Do you think the lessons that, that you learned, that these utopian communities learned, do you think they have anything to teach future utopian communities? And I don't even know if you have a sense of if such things exist or if there's a you know, rebirth on the horizon. I don't see a lot around now that gives me great hope from a sort of utopian perspective. I think that there's a, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in San Francisco where there's a lot of sort of utopian-ish talk surrounding technology, and I'm not very sanguine about where that will lead. Um, But I think that we now sort of misuse um, that term, or rather we use it for too many things. I think that there's certainly lessons from these folks just about considering what the future ought to look like in a very abstract way. I think it's a habit we've fallen out of, and for good reason. The 20th century, some, some of the, the ugliest, darkest events of the 20th century were associated with sort of vaguely utopian ideologies and ideas that a sort of total revolution was the appropriate way to change the world. We've been somewhat cured of that thinking by what the 20th century showed us. But I think we do a disservice to ourselves to totally fall out of the habit of sort of thinking grandly and abstractly about what the future ought to look like. And not just in terms of whether or not we should have flying cars, but but what, <laughs> what our social relations ought to look like. Chris Jennings is the author of Paradise Now, the story of American utopianism. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you. It was great being with you. We talked about the power of the Shakers, who, of course, don't believe in reproducing. According to Jennings, that was because they thought of sex as pushing us towards our animal selves rather than our angelic selves. Ironically, the Shakers became tremendously successful as a community, and they've survived for more than 250 years. But just a few weeks ago, one of the last three Shakers died. Her name was Sister Frances Carr, and she lived at Sabbath Day Lake in Maine. There are now two Shakers left in America. Both live in Maine. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. So about 200 years ago, as we were just talking about, there was this widespread movement to recreate the way we live, to make the world more perfect. Not just by making little tweaks, but by building entirely new communities. That utopian impulse isn't around as much anymore, or at least it doesn't translate into new towns frequently popping up around the country. But there are exceptions, and there are some unusual figures committed to big change. 
One of those figures is Judy Cockerton, who used to own toy stores. I met her on a cold day in central Massachusetts in a village that she built. And she wants villages like this around the country. She's actually already at work on several. The villages are for kids and for two other groups of people, people who have or want to adopt these kids and senior citizens who are often done raising their own families, but they're not done wanting to nurture a new generation. The young people who live here, it's called Treehouse Village, have to meet a single criteria. They're foster care kids, or they once were. To understand why Judy Cockerton would bother building whole villages for kids, you have to go back to a dinner that she had about 20 years ago. We were at dinner, uh, my husband and our two children and I, and um, he's a newspaper man, he's a photojournalist, and he said one night, here's an article that I think would be, you'd find interesting. And um, I had owned my own businesses for almost 20 years. I loved my work. I was not looking for anything else to do. And this was a little story about a, a baby boy, a five-month-old baby boy, living in Worcester in a foster home who was kidnapped from his crib in the middle of the day. I was a teacher, I was a mom, I was a businesswoman, and that article was such a catalyst for me. I remember saying to my kids who were 12 and 18 at the time, can you come back? They were putting their dishes in the sink. Can you come back and sit down because we need to have a family meeting? Mm -hmm. And um, we talked about our public foster care system and that it's our public foster care system and that things like this should never happen. And what were we going to do as a family to help support the work of the Department of Children and Families so that children were never involved in situations like this? And we decided that we wanted to be a foster family. And you just had this meeting even though foster care had never been a part of your life or you knew nothing about it. Right, right. Do you think that's unusual? I mean, think about how many stories people read in the newspaper about, you know, wars and terribly sad things that happen in in our country and other countries. And mostly then you just clean up after dinner. You clean Mm -hmm. up after breakfast or whatever. I don't know. I think this this uh, this story just just really caught me. My husband knew it would. <laughs> I always say the reason that we became foster parents was because you gave me an article. <laughs> um, but um, you know, it just uh, it just hooked me. I was forty eight years old, and I had been serving children like my own children, children of privilege, children who had so many wonderful opportunities and so many wonderful resources. And I just uh, began reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, I'd say, you know, by the time children were placed in our home, I really felt like I had learned three really important things. The first one is we have set our children, our child welfare system up to fail. Because we say, here, have a little bit of money. Your mandate is to take care of the most challenging and vulnerable children and families. And we'll only pay attention if something goes wrong. Yeah, so um, that was the first thing I learned, that we had set our, our child welfare system up to fail. The second thing I learned is that every year in this country, 25,000 young Americans age out of our foster care system alone at risk for homelessness, incarceration, lives of poverty, teen parenting, unemployment. Basically, they are the next generation of poor and homeless Americans. Um, so uh, that that was a, a really big reality check for me. In fact, that was 
was the statistic that grabbed me by the ankle and would not let me go. That was the statistic that led me to create the Treehouse community. So, you know, you read this article, it kind of changes the way that you think about foster care. You bring a foster care child into your life, a little baby girl, how old was she? Five months old. Five months old. Um, At what point do you think, and also, I'm going to start a town? (laughs) <laughs> because that's a big leap, right? Yes, a lot yes. of, you know, there you've got people who certainly um, help with foster care, but that you've done something bigger than I think most people. Well, I remember do. standing in the Lego section of my toy store in Brookline called No Kidding, and I was in the Lego section rocking my little one to sleep. She was in her little baby Bjorn carrier, and I was thinking about everything I'd learned. I was thinking about the fact that I had learned that we had set our child welfare system up to fail, that 25,000 young people age out of foster care alone every year. I also realized that most Americans think there are only two ways they can support a child placed in care. You either become a foster parent or you adopt a child from care. And if you can't do that, then there's nothing else to do. This is how people think about it. And so the result is millions of Americans turn and walk away from children in their communities, the children who need them the most. So I'm rocking the baby to sleep, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've learned all these things. What can I do as a teacher, as a 48-year-old citizen? What can I do to help flip the paradigm, the current paradigm? And um, that was really the moment I began re-envisioning foster care in America because I thought, okay, if I can get those millions of Americans to stop and turn around and come back and become resources to children placed in foster care, that would really make a difference. Did you ever worry before it was built or while it was getting built, what if people don't move in with their kids? Or what if seniors don't want to do this like they're not their kids they're not their grandkids do you know what i mean what what if we get maybe a couple people but but i'm building a town here and we're gonna need to populate it um i never worried about it once because as a foster adoptive parent myself i knew that the need for foster adoptive parents to be supported and not be isolated out in random communities across the commonwealth when you're in isolation you fail and so i knew that there were lots of families like my family that would love living in a community where their needs were being met and supported and uh, the health and well-being of their family was being supported and that they were being strengthened as a family and I just knew so many wonderful elders who wanted to live lives of meaning and purpose. So I'm 65, um, and elders who come to live at Treehouse are 55 and older. And elders living on Treehouse Circle right now are 58 to 95. Hmm. And the majority of those folks are women, and they are women who love children, have raised children, whose families may be too busy to be involved with them in the ways that they have energy to be involved with. Perhaps they live in other states. But these are vibrant women who want to give back, and men as well. Um, But these are seniors who really want to be living lives of meaning and purpose and don't want to be living with just one age group who want to be part of something big. Many states have struggled. Uh, Massachusetts has struggled. New York has struggled. Mississippi has struggled with maintaining their foster care system. 
What is it about managing a foster care system on the state level that is so difficult? I mean, you think about there's all these class action lawsuits against the foster care system. There's something that must be very, very difficult for the people who work in it, even as social workers and everything, to manage this. And why haven't we figured it out in America yet? Well, I think standing on the front lines as a foster parent, what I saw is that social workers are young and inexperienced often. They are dealing with very, very complex families with very, very complex challenges. And they are um, oftentimes given way too many caseloads. So they're overwhelmed, they're under-resourced, and it takes us to be able to step up and say, wait a minute, there must be a better way to do this. Without us, they cannot do their work. How much of a complication do you think the opioid slash heroin epidemic has created for the foster system in every state? I think it's overwhelmed the child welfare system in every single state because there are so many uh, young children and youth coming into the system uh, because of it. Have you seen, so, you know, Treehouse Village has been around for just about a decade. Have you seen things really change in a decade in terms of drug use and how that impacts kids? Well, I just know from our child welfare partners that there are many, many young children coming into care as a result of the opioid addiction Mm -hmm. epidemic and that they need as many people to step up to the plate to support those infants, toddlers, preschoolers, um, and and elementary age children as possible. That is such a tough situation that you've got a bunch of people with really young kids, but they can't really help them in the way that they probably would like to. And, and absolutely, you know, it takes it's 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 an engaged citizenry that will help the Department of Children and Families become successful. The kids at Treehouse, uh, from my understanding, have done a lot better at finishing their education and then going on to college than the national average when you look at uh, kids in the foster care system. Why do you think that is? What's oh, happened? Well, as a teacher, that was one of the first things that I noticed um, uh, when I was reading statistics were the dismal educational outcomes for children and youth living in foster care. And I think it's a combination of things. It's if you are placed in foster care and, um, and your mental health needs are not addressed and your trauma needs are not addressed right away, it's really difficult for a child to begin to even move into a place of learning if they are worried and if they're scared. And so making sure that mental health is the top priority is is key um, to their success. Also making sure that they just have a steady, stable home life. So if they come from chaos and they're not used to doing homework, they're not used to going to school regularly, making sure that they have a new pattern in their life and that they're stable and that they're not bouncing from home to home to home, but in fact, they are home, hmm. right? They are home and um, and then that people show up every day, the same predictable people. Right. The same people are there every day helping them. They understand what their learning challenges might be and they're supporting them in the best way possible. So they come home from school, they come to the community center and can do their homework with all of these people who they know and love and trust. 
And so therefore, they can begin to learn again. And then they succeed. And then their success builds on that. And they stay in school and graduate and go on. How has um, running this kind of little village, starting it up, how has it changed you in the last decade? Do you feel different? Oh, I feel like I'm a much better human being. Not that I wasn't a nice person before, but I just feel like I have come into contact with so many fabulous people of all ages and backgrounds, um, people who are struggling mightily, who have taught me about humility and strength and grit and resilience and uh, grace, um, and people, philanthropists, who who would invest in this mission and vision in large ways because they understand the importance of it. That's very humbling as well. So I feel like from um, all places on the spectrum, I have learned many, many lessons and uh, continue to every day. No matter where I go, I'm learning something new about how to address a certain issue, how to collaborate with people in a different way. When I owned my own businesses, I was used to turning on a dime. Like if I wanted to change something, I changed it fast, and then I got a new result. You can't necessarily do that when you're working with a child welfare system or you're working with people who are afraid of um, uh, child welfare in general or who are uh, who just don't have the resources necessary to move quickly. Um, so it's been uh, quite a learning experience for me, quite a journey, and I, I'm very grateful for it. Do you ever feel like it takes an emotional toll on you? No. 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 So you're 65, you said? Yes. Um, do you think you'll still be doing this in 10 years? I hope so. Okay. Retirement so. is not. No, it's not horizon. an option for me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with 25,000 young Americans aging out of foster care every year, you know, as long as I can do this work, I'm here. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it. I always say onward and upward for the kids. Judy, thank you so much. This is great. It's my pleasure. Thank you. When my producer and I visited Treehouse Village in a small town in central Massachusetts, we got there at tea time. Three days a week, the seniors in the community host this afternoon event where kids can hang out, they can get homework help, there's pie, soup, salad. I really, 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 really like how I have friends here because in Springfield I didn't like have like a lot of friends at all. Azaria, who's nine, told us that she also has some friends who are a little older. Well, I usually draw with one of them. She's really nice. And we usually talk and they ask me what's going on. I tell them about school and stuff. But that's mostly one person. We're neighbors, actually. The closest, very close neighbors. She lives in a house, a full house, children and, and adults, and I live in senior housing, which is just one personal, you know. <laughs> and she's delightful. Emily Lewis has known Azaria for four years, ever since she moved next door to her family. Like a lot of the elders living at Treehouse, Lewis had never worked directly with foster care kids before. The challenges are few. But one that has been a real learning experience is to get the kids to trust you. Uh, it took years, actually, several years with some of them, for them to just not see me as a potential threat. And it's been a process. 
It's a process that seems to be working, at least for Azaria. I'm glad they don't pinch my cheeks like in movies. But there is a big question underneath all the excitement. Can Judy Cockerton's village concept scale up and multiply out? The answer is complicated. Right now, foster families receive, on average, about $25 a day for each kid. That breaks down to about a dollar an hour. I think it's easy to say the foster care system's failing. Joe Ryan is a professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan. The, the kids who go into foster care, they have lower levels of college enrollments, they have higher levels of delinquency. But these are problems that a lot of them had coming into the foster care system, so it's not the foster care system per se. Could it be improved? Absolutely. At Treehouse, all families are either planning to or already have adopted their kids, which might explain the 99% high school graduation rate. Ryan doubts that places like Treehouse could fix the entire foster care system, but he does see them as part of a larger network. Everyone always wants to scale their programs. There's no real drawbacks. I mean, in any of these interventions, uh, we ought to view them as contributing to the solution, right? They're not going to work for all kids. As the treehouse model expands across the country, even Judy Cockerton acknowledges that building a bunch of villages is too small scale to change the lives of hundreds of thousands of kids. But like Ryan, she subscribes to that multi-pronged approach. She told me she organizes her communities to support mentorship programs and summer activities, things that are going to involve a lot of foster care kids in the area. So the idea is that the, the village is sort of there, it's an anchor, it's a place to gather. Some people live here, but it's sort of It's ideally, a hub of innovation. Yeah, it yeah. is a hub of innovation. <laughs> really? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, we, yeah, we, and if we've said that since 2006, you know, and it's a catalyst for inspiring widespread foster care innovation. We've got a lot more about the patchwork of foster care systems across the country on our website, innovationhub.org. And if you want to share this story with someone or hear a segment that you missed, our podcast is on iTunes. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back in a minute. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. And from Destination Medical Center, with Mayo Clinic at its heart, DMC is a strategic economic initiative committed to making Rochester, Minnesota the world center for life science and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. We're talking today about people and groups who have tried to build a more perfect world, sometimes with impressive results, sometimes not. There are few communities as committed to a way of life as the Amish, a way of life that they believe gets them close to God. And they've long been fascinating to us precisely because of that commitment. Donald Craybill is an expert on the Amish, and he argues that their rejection of technology in a world where screens are always in your face all the time That actually hasn't been a drawback. It's only made them more successful and amazingly more creative. 
Craybill is a professor emeritus at Elizabethtown College in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and he's the author of The Amish, among other books. Donald, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So here's just a very, very basic question uh, right off the bat. Why do the Amish live so differently than, than most of us do? I mean, what are they trying to achieve? Well, they are fundamentally a religious community. Their roots go back to the time of the Protestant Reformation in 16th century Europe. And one of their fundamental teachings in their religious uh, belief is that the church should maintain separation from the world. So a lot of their peculiar practices, particularly related to technology and so on, is an attempt to apply that principle to everyday life of how they can maintain separation from the larger culture and the larger world. Hmm. Uh, what, what are their limits in terms of technology? So Amish church members are not permitted to own an automobile or to have a driver's license. And so as a sociologist, I would argue that the fundamental purpose of that, the way it works, is to keep the community together. They fear that having an automobile will fragment their community. People will drive off to jobs. Hmm. And if by using horse transportation, it tethers them to the local community. Now, one of the important things to understand about their technology is that they frequently negotiate with modernity. Hmm. So they do workarounds. And um, they're in a sense, they're hacking. And so with the automobile, for example, many business people hire an employee, an outside non-Amish employee who provides a vehicle and provide, and serves as a driver for the business. So what about newer technology? Like do the Amish have websites? Do they have smartphones? Uh, do they surf the Internet? I mean, we've certainly seen in the last 10, 20 years a surge in the tech that's around us um, and that has changed how most of us live, does it change how the Amish live? Um, let me give you an example of technology that I found very interesting. Uh, I had been reading about 3D printers for a number of years, and two years ago, I took my students on a field trip and saw one for the first time. Guess where it was? It was in an Amish lantern shop. Whoa! What he was doing is Recently, the Amish church in eastern Pennsylvania in Lancaster County has permitted people to use LED lights. Mm. And so they are using now LED lights in their home instead of electricity off a line, but operating them from batteries. So this young man was using these, uh, he had created programs to operate these 3D printers to manufacture a coupling that fit between the batteries and the LED lights. And it was a niche market within the Amish community. Hmm. And he was running these 3D printers off of batteries, okay? So uh, he, said, <laughs> um, we, he said, we run these uh, 624. No, he said, we don't run them on Sunday, but he's right. running them 24 hours a day, the other like six days of the week. Like 24 seven, but 624, right. right. Exactly. What I find fascinating here is this paradox, a fascinating paradox that you have a culture of restraint that breeds a culture of innovation. And so 
in many cases, the Amish are hacking. They're trying to work around the system, doing all kinds of workarounds. And these restraints really spur innovation, spur imagination, spur creativity in a fascinating way. You know, I think many of us think of the Amish as living on the land, as having barn raisings and running farms. But, you know, to the point that you were just making, there's many, many Amish uh, who run businesses and remarkably successful businesses at that. Exactly. Let me talk just a little bit about that because I find it uh, in some ways the most fascinating part of Amish culture. Across the country, about two-thirds of Amish households would get their primary income off of the farm. Um, And remember now, these are people educated at the eighth grade. Um, They have not gone to high school. They don't have technical training. They have restrictions on using – that they can't use electricity off of the public line, restrictions on not using um, uh, automobiles and so on. And so what they have done is created a mini industrial revolution in the last 25 years that has uh, spawned a whole host of small uh, Amish uh, businesses that are extremely successful. And uh, they had to find, figure out ways to operate these businesses without electricity off the line. So, right, right. And so that is how they developed the power and the energy uh, to operate these, these businesses. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Professor Donald Craybill about innovation in Amish communities. Um, you've actually written about a guy who had started a food business and was doing close to a couple million dollars in sales, no cell phone, no email address. Right. How is that possible? Well, well, part of it is the, the Amish branding is a gift to young entrepreneurs. So um, I have a friend, that, Amish friend that runs a deli shop, okay? Uh, the the products that he is selling, cheeses, bologna, all kinds of salads and so on, on this in this deli, uh, none of that is Amish made. Mm. Uh, he buys it from other uh, distributors, but his family is there, the children are there, and they're at the counter selling this product, and so it's viewed as an Amish deli shop, right. and the only Amishness in it is that an Amish person has touched a product, uh, you know, (laughs) before it's being sold. And that branding is powerful because, again, it's evocative of uh, feelings that we have about homemade, early Americana, something that's well cared for. um, And the the young entrepreneur, uh, whether they're manufacturing farming equipment or doing construction or furniture or running a deli shop, they benefit from that brand. Yeah, it becomes you become more desirable when you're hard to get at, which is actually not something that is really that surprising to any of us in our lives. But it, it, they're like the business version of the, the elusive person, right? Exactly, precisely. Think about this for a moment. Um, here you have young people who've gone to... Uh, Eighth through eighth grades, some of them have had just one teacher, 30 students in a classroom, and the message in that schoolroom is technology is not important. They don't have calculators. They don't have scientific laboratories for chemistry. Uh, they basically – there's no technology in that classroom except for a battery-operated clock and some kind of a stove. 
um, these young persons, men and women, about a quarter of the Amish businesses are owned and operated by women. Um, how do they become successful entrepreneurs? They haven't gone to the Wharton School at the University right. of Pennsylvania right. or Harvard Business School. They don't right. have a college degree in human resource management, nothing like that. Well, and beyond that, I would say by eighth grade, certainly by 12th grade, most people expect that their kids have a real mastery of technology. Certainly, if they started their own business, there's a lot of things they could do to help themselves. Um, but, you know, here you've got a bunch of people coming out of the eighth grade who have no real sense of the technological landscape that we're in right now. And yet, the failure rate for Amish businesses is under 5%, whereas the failure rate for businesses nationwide is about 50%. And the secret to their success, the secret, I would argue, is in a single word, and that is the word apprenticeship. So when they come out of eighth grade, even while they're still in eighth grade, they're working for their uncle or their aunt helping them. And they're growing up inside the business. I see uh, young children running a cash register when they're seven or eight years of age, and they do it successfully. They're learning those skills at an early age, and then by the time they're 20, they're earning significant income. They have no college debt. They've learned the skills of that profession, and they're all set, basically, in terms of a career track for the rest of their life. So I, I know in the last couple of decades, the number of Amish have more than doubled. I think that's right. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, about every 20 years, they, the population doubles. How hard is it to sort of try to keep this idealized community intact that you're really working hard on that has a set of values when that community is very different from the world around it and the community itself keeps getting bigger and, and there's, you know, more parts of it. Well, I think one of the threats to the Amish community is technology. Many of the young people have smartphones before they become church members when they're typically 18 to 22. Huh. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to give those smartphones up. But they have and to. They have to give it up to become part of the church? They're supposed to. Okay. But a smartphone is different than a television. The Amish have had historically always a sharp, strong taboo against television. I see. And television's a big item. It sits, you know, in a room somewhere. Right. Some would maybe hide it out in the barn in a closet somewhere. But a smartphone you can put in your pocket. Yeah. And I said at the beginning that one of their religious principles is separation from the world. Well, in the past, in Lancaster, if you wanted to really see the world, you went to Philadelphia or Washington or New York City. Right. Well, now every Amish young person can carry a smartphone in their pocket right. out in a cornfield and have all of the world at their fingertips. So I think that's a really major threat to their long-term viability. I think it's not easy to control that kind of technology in a way that you're able to control owning an automobile or having a television set, which is such a large public piece of equipment. Have you heard um, Amish people express that concern to you? Yes, very much. I think part of it is the technology changes so much and young people, 18 to 20 year olds are learning it. They have Facebook pages hmm. and the older leaders and oftentimes parents don't understand or don't really know what the kids have access right. to. And that really inverts the traditional 
way in which a traditional society like Amish operated, where the wisdom was always in the hands of the elders and your grandparents would teach the grandchildren how to do things. And now that whole thing is flipped upside down with younger people getting uh, a lot of access to technology, particularly in terms of smartphones or small handheld devices where they can easily be hidden and it's hard to really control them or to actually know for the elders to know really what's going on or what they have access to. Donald Craybill is the author of The Amish, among other books. He's also a professor emeritus at Elizabethtown College in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Donald, thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. Donald Craybill is part of an American Experience documentary looking at how the Amish live. We've got a clip from it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.